We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday from May 17th, 2022, with Susan Gatehouse substitute hosting for Chuck Buck and Dr. Eric Reamer. Today, we welcome popular panelist Jerry Fletcher with our lead story. Lori Johnson brings us coding news. Crystal Kemble has the Tuesday focus. Healthcare attorney and litigator Brianna Santoli presents Talk Law. Dr. John Zellum is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Susan Gatehouse shares her point of view. Now, here's the host of today's Talk 10 Tuesday, and the kid who brought Krispy Kreme donuts for the whole class, Susan Gatehouse. (laughs) Thank you, Clark Anthony. Clark is always here to keep everyone on their toes. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the 508th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I have the honor today of sitting in for Chuck and Erica while they're on assignment. It's always a pleasure to be here. I will have a point of view at the end of this broadcast regarding recent changes related to supply chain management challenges in healthcare. I hope everyone's looking forward to today's broadcast. And we do have much news to report. So we start today off with the news desk with Dr. Zellum. Good morning, Dr. Zellum. Good morning and thanks, Susan, and good morning to all. Taking a little different approach this week, I'd like to add a little humor to the reality of what really happens in reactions with physicians in dealing with the different components of clinical revenue cycle Specifically, you are a UR specialist, case managers, clinical documentation specialists, and coders. I'm sure that you might identify with some of these scenarios of attempting physician communication for answers to queries specific to your department. And I will use the term case manager as a generic. The first one is a successful discussion. Probably happens more often than is thought. Number two, the curmudgeon which is defined as a bad-tempered, difficult, cantankerous person. Believe it or not, that was me, and it was not uncommon for me to say when queried, and what medical school did you go to? This usually did not result in a very productive conversation. Next is the runner. This is the doc who starts walking down the hall and spots a case manager ahead. They're thinking, they wanna talk to me, I don't wanna talk to to them, and they run off into another direction. I've seen medical docs run into the OR, and they weren't even surgeons. Number four is the invisible man slash woman. This is the doc who makes rounds at 6 a.m. or 9 p.m. just so they don't have to see a case manager or discuss the case with anyone. The evader. In today's world of technology with varying devices, texting, cell phones, and more ways to communicate, this person is not seen very, very much. Yet, they do have ways of ignoring calls and texts are saying, I never got it. The next one is the sneak. There are some facilities that, that do not require the attending to do a discharge summary for patients in observation. I was guilty of being a sneak. I'm revealing all of my bad habits from the past. When ready to discharge a patient, I would change the status to observation and then write the discharge order. That way, the case manager could not have time to talk with me about the change. Yes, I was a case utilization review nightmare. Number seven, the pleaser. Essentially, this is the doc who says that he or she will do whatever is asked and then goes ahead and does whatever the heck they want. Last is the collegiate. This is the doc where there is actually a great conversation and give information that's needed for the appropriate level of care or whatever query is being proposed to that and or referred to a physician advisor. In today's world, with there being more physician advisors around, 
they may run into similar situations, but probably not as many. Physicians can't play as many tricks when it is a peer they're talking with. Docs behave better, but not always. Back to you, Susan. Thanks, Dr. Zellum. That was Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum is the founder and CEO of Streamline Solutions Consulting. Laurie Johnson is up next with our coding report. Good morning, Susan, and hello to our listeners. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, um, has published provisional data which shows that drug overdose deaths hit a record high at 107,622 in 2021. This is an increase of 15% over the 2020 reported overdose deaths. The overdose deaths due to opioids, synthetic or manufactured, were 71,000. The deaths related to methamphetamines increased to 33,000, and the deaths related to cocaine were just under 25,000. This data is currently provisional and may be updated in the future. I thought today that I would review the coding process for poisoning based on the official coding and reporting guidelines for ICD-10-CM 2022, section I.C.19.E. This portion of the guideline says, one, do not code directly from the table of drugs. Always check the tabular volume for additional instructions. Number two, use as many codes as needed to describe all the drugs involved. Three, only report a code once. So if two codes use the same code, you only need to report it once. Number four is if two or more drugs, medicinal or biological substances are involved, code separately unless there is a combination available. Number five, for drug toxicity, it includes adverse effect, poisoning, and underdosing. Adverse effect, you code the manifestation first, followed by the code for the adverse effect of the drug. The code for um, the adverse effect is found under the column titled adverse effect. The manifestations would follow that drug code. Poisoning is an overdose, wrong substance given or taken in error, wrong route of administration. Poisoning includes accidental, self-harm, assault, and undetermined. These types have separate columns in the code book. Additional codes may be assigned for the manifestations. C is underdosing, taking less of a medication than is prescribed. The noncompliance codes Z91.12, Z91.13, and Z91.14 or complication of care codes can be used with the underdosing code to indicate intent if known. Underdosing cannot be assigned as a principal diagnosis or a first listed code. The poisoning and adverse effect codes are found in the code range of T36 to T50. Poisoning by adverse effect of in underdosing of drugs and medicaments and biological substances. And T51 to T65 is toxic effects of substances chiefly non-medicinal as to source. We can see that coding of these cases impacts reported data that is that is made public. Incorrect reporting will cause the data to be revised down the road. 
So again, important to have our coding process in order for poisonings. I hope that you will join me on the webcast tomorrow for fiscal year 23 proposed rule for inpatient prospective payment system. And with that, Susan, back to you. Thanks, Laurie. That was Laurie Johnson, is our Senior Healthcare Consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions. It's Tuesday, May 17th, and you're listening to the 508th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. We'll be back right after this important message. The extensive resources available from Find a Code make finding the correct codes easier than ever allowing you to process more claims more accurately and in less time. Find-A-Code lets you build a flexible, personalized package of tools that specifically meet your needs. Choose one of three subscription levels, then customize your subscription by adding more specific code references, guides, policies, reports, and exclusive Find-A-Code tools. You get the most value for your money by buying only what you need. Find-A-Code's online libraries include extensive information for all major code sets, along with a wealth of supplemental material, such as newsletters and manuals. It's all indexed, searchable, and organized for quick access and extensive cross-referencing. Find-A-Code, the most complete and easy-to-use software for coding professionals, helping you save time, increase revenue, and avoid denials. See everything Find-A-Code has to offer at findacode.com talk10. That's findacode.com slash talk10. Now is the time for a new segment here at Talk 10 Tuesday called Talk Law, featuring healthcare attorney and litigator Brianna Santoli. Talk Law is sponsored by Hitex, a clinical informatics organization dedicated to bringing the most advanced technology and people to assist healthcare professionals at the point of care and provide proactive workflow assistance to clinical documentation integrity, computer-assisted physician documentation, and clinical decision support. All high-tech products are integrated into the Epic EHR front-end user interface. Find them at hitechs.com. Here now is Brianna Santoli. Thank you, Susan. Good morning, everyone. I'm here to tell you about legal challenges to one of 2022's most talked about laws, the No Surprises Act. Effective January 1st, 2022, the new law protects consumers from unexpected out-of-network medical bills. The act establishes new billing protections for patients when getting emergency care, certain non-emergency care from out-of-network providers during visits to certain in-network facilities, and air ambulance services from out-of-network providers. Under the No Surprises Act, payers are limited to billing patients for cost-sharing, deductibles, and out-of-pocket maximums at the level or amount that the patient would have paid had the services been provided in-network. The effect of the new law is that payment disputes are now primarily between payers and providers. The patient is left out of it. Thank God. Health plans and insurers are required to reimburse certain out-of-network services at a statutorily calculated rate. However, that's not as straightforward as it sounds, and it leads to payment disputes between payers and providers. If the parties cannot agree on the out-of-network reimbursement rate, then under the No Surprises Act, they are required to participate in an independent dispute resolution in which a certified arbitrator will consider competing positions on what the reimbursement rate should be. 
the arbitrator is required to consider a number of factors, including the qualifying payment amount, referred to as the QPA, which is the inflation-adjusted median of contracted rates for in-network services. Other factors include the provider's level of training and experience, among other things. The dispute resolution procedure under the No Surprises Act has not been without legal challenge. Most recently, the Texas Medical Association sued the federal government under the Administrative Procedure Act to challenge an interim final rule published in October 2021 that established a rebuttable presumption in favor of the reimbursement rate submitted to the certified arbiter that was closest to the QPA. Under the rule, to rebut the presumption, the payer or provider was required to submit credible information why the QPA is materially different from the appropriate out-of-network rate. The Texas Medical Association successfully argued that the rule forced the arbitrator to ignore the other factors contemplated by the No Surprises Act and effectively guaranteed that the arbitration would presumptively favor payers who had the ultimate say-so on the QPA. On February 23, 2022, the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Texas struck down the QPA-favored rebuttable presumption, finding that the language of the No Surprises Act requiring arbitrators to consider all identified factors was unambiguous and that the rule's rebuttable presumption impermissibly conflicted with the statutory text. To date, we still have not seen any response from the federal government but this case and others like it are something to keep an eye on as the rulings and government response will have significant implications for out-of-network providers across the country. Thanks for having me to talk law. Back to you, Susan. Thanks, Brianna. That was Brianna Santoli. Brianna is a healthcare attorney and litigator with the firm Riker, Danzig, Scherer, Hyland, and Peretti. Coming up next is our Tuesday Focus. Please stand by. Each year, the inpatient prospective payment system proposed rule contains impactful changes, including changes to the ICD-10 CMPCS classification systems, MSDRGs, as well as new technology add-on payments. Proposed changes are often a mixed bag for hospitals, having some positive and some negative impacts. Whether good or bad, it is important to understand the proposed changes in the coding and methodology in order to prepare your facility and coders promptly. During tomorrow's ICD-10 Monitor webcast, Coding Authority Lori Johnson will provide essential education on the changes contained in the FY 2023 IPS proposed rule. That webcast is tomorrow, May 18th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now to attend. Now's the time for Tuesday's Focus featuring Crystal Kimball. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning, Susan, and happy Tuesday, everyone. Today's topic, we're going to talk about CAUTIs. So what seems to present itself as an easily identified query opportunity? We have to be mindful because that can lead to an unnecessary hospital-acquired condition, and that's commonly known as the HAC6, the catheter-associated urinary tract infection, also known as a CAUTI. We need to know how to identify a CAUTI and recognize the clinical criteria for the type of urinary tract infection because that is imperative before crafting a query. 
It is one of the it is the fifth most common health associated infections. The first step that we need to do is identify what a cauti is, knowing the definitions, and knowing the type of urinary tract infection that is connected to a cauti. So our first question we want to ask ourselves is, what is a catheter-associated UTI? National Healthcare Safety Network, NHSN, defines it as a UTI where an indwelling urinary catheter was in place for more than two consecutive days in an inpatient location on the date of the event, with the day of the device placement being counted as the first day and the indwelling urinary catheter was in place for the day of the event or the day before. Are all catheters considered an indwelling catheter? One needs to ask. Per NHSN states that indwelling catheter is a drainage tube that is inserted into the urinary bladder through the urethra that is left in place, and it's connected to a drainage bag, including leg bags. They're also commonly known as Foley catheters. What is not considered, however, as an indwelling catheter are your condom catheters, your straight in and out catheters, um, nephrostomy tubes, ileoconduits, supra catheters, unless there is an indwelling catheter in place as well. What is the type of urinary tract infection that meets the CAUTI criteria? It has to be a symptomatic UTI. So according to NHSN, what is a symptomatic UTI? One of these have to at least be present. So if the patient has a fever that is greater than 38 degrees Celsius, if they have suprapubic tenderness with no other causes, if there is urinary urgency, it cannot be considered, though, if the catheter is in place. Urinary frequency, again, it cannot be considered if a catheter is placed. Dysuria, one last time, cannot be considered if that catheter is in place. Also, a urine culture has to have no more than two species of an organism identified, at least in which bacterium up 10 to the fifth. Clarification, if a UTI is due to an indwelling catheter, is a common query practice, so common that we must be able to identify the definitions of a cauti before presenting to a provider. Don't get caught querying without knowing the ins and outs. And that is my Tuesday focus. Back to you, Susan. Thank you, Crystal. That was Crystal Kimball, who is an RN for Covenant Health. Our lead story today features Terry Fletcher, who will talk about cracking down on quality of care. This segment of Talk 10 Tuesday is sponsored by Find a Code, home of the most complete and easy-to-use software for medical coders, helping you save time, increase revenue, and avoid denials. More online at findacode.com slash talk10. Here now to report our lead story is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Susan, and good morning, listeners. So here's a headline that I read this past week, and I was like, wait, this can't be true. Let me read that again. From March 2020 to February 2021, 32.5 million services were delivered via telehealth versus 2.1 million services the prior year to Medicaid beneficiaries. But Medicaid hasn't collected or assessed data on the quality of care beneficiaries received from telehealth services. We recommend doing so. Yes, you heard right. Medicaid hasn't collected or assessed data on the quality of care from telehealth. The study went on to say, and CMS has no plans to do so. Wait, what? How is this even possible? The lobbying efforts are out there right now from MGMA, AHA, AMA, you name it. 
every possible agency that has seen an uptick in telehealth services since the pandemic started in 2020, and they continue to put pressure on Congress to extend the PHE, I think they want it forever, but to allow reimbursement to continue to be in par with in-person visits and basically continue this free-for-all with no oversight. I'm a proponent of telehealth, I am, and as long as it shows it's more than a convenient way to deliver healthcare, it has to show that it's also medically necessary, efficient way of delivering healthcare, and effective in its outcomes. It cannot just be another waste of government spending, and this should be a top priority for CMS. That headline came from an agency that you may not be familiar with, the GAO, or U.S. Government Accountability Office who provides Congress, the heads of executive agencies, and the public with timely, fact-based, nonpartisan information that can be used to improve government and save taxpayers billions of dollars. The GAO further stated that collecting this data is important given concerns that the GAO, GAO has raised about the quality of care provided telehealth. It would also be consistent with how CMS has encouraged states to use data on quality care to identify disparities in healthcare and target opportunities for improvement to advance healthcare equity. So I was baffled as to why after two years into this pandemic, into our ninth renewal of the PHE and, and how the policing and scrutiny of physicians and providers have been receiving on telehealth, that the government was not also being held to the same standard of accountability. Under the CARES Act that brought us the 1135 flexibilities, it included a provision for the GAO to report on the federal response to the pandemic. In addition, the GAO was asked to examine the use of Medicaid flexibilities in response to COVID-19. This report describes states, selected states' telehealth use before and during the pandemic and experiences with, with and plans for telehealth. It also evaluates, among other things, CMS telehealth oversight and quality of services. So after reading that article that followed the headline, I kept asking myself the question, how can you expand telehealth in the Medicaid or even Medicare program if you don't have all the data to show it's safe, effective, accessible, and the quality of care is comparable to an in-person patient visit. Well, you can't. So the GAO is making two recommendations to CMS. One, to collect and analyze information about the effect of delivering services via telehealth has on the quality of care for Medicaid beneficiaries, and two, to determine any next steps based on the results of the analysis. But I would also like to add more to this recommendation. What is the race and ethnicity of patients receiving telehealth during the first 12 months of the pandemic? Pandemic. Most states do not have that information. How can you report on healthcare disparities amongst racial and ethnic groups if you don't have that information? What about age of patients? We need to know about medi-medi patients. How about gender? How many male versus female visits were received in telehealth and what was trending diagnosis for those services? Also, what about location? Did you know that in a few states studied like Arizona and California, beneficiaries in urban areas had a higher percentage of telehealth visits than rural. Is that due to lack of high-speed internet? Medicaid officials from the six states that have been selected also cited limitations of delivering services via telehealth. Examples cited by the officials included less comprehensive well-child visits. Officials in Arizona, California, Maine, Missouri, and Tennessee raised concerns about conducting well visits via telehealth. For example, officials in Arizona and California noted that a provider could not conduct a comprehensive assessment of a child's physical symptoms via telephone, and it may be more difficult to hold a child's attention during a telehealth visit, particularly if the child has behavioral health needs. So before Congress folds to the pressure of the lobbyists working to continue to push for telehealth expansion and permanency, which I do feel we need absolutely to open it up and, and have that expanded, 
the GAO needs to assess the accountability and efficacy of the telehealth services being paid. Government spending should be on par with how we try to budget. It is, is it what we want or is it what we need? That's the question. Wants are great, but let's meet the needs of patients first by having all of the information needed to make an informed decision. You can read my article on this topic today in ICD10monitor.com. And with that, Susan, back to you. Thank you, Terry. Certainly a lot to consider. That was Terry Fletcher, who is a well-known healthcare coding consultant, author, educator, and auditor, as well as podcaster. Now it's time for Point of View, which is covering the recent challenges related to supply chain and healthcare products. With that said, experts predict that supply, predicted the supply chain issues would continue throughout 2022, but the sheer severity has come as a surprise to many. Supply chain in its essence is an unpredictable, complex process. In general, products reach consumers through a chain of companies involved, which typically include manufacturers, logistics related to storage, distribution, and transportation, as well as retailers. However, being hit with a number of extraordinary circumstances, there have been many additional layers added to that complexity, which has created an unexpected, unexpected issues in 2022. The most obvious being the unprecedented pressures on global supply chains created by COVID, the COVID pandemic. In the subsequent series of lockdowns and restrictions, which have extreme variation in their timing and severity from country to country. Unfortunately, many of the most stringent lockdowns have been in countries affecting the manufacturing and medical supplies. The newest reported challenge in the healthcare sector involves supplies of IV contrast. Contrast, also known as dye, is used daily in U.S. healthcare for a multitude of purposes, from diagnosing and treating strokes to monitoring cancerous tumors. More than 10 million injections of contrast are given in the United States each year. While the healthcare industry remains overburdened and understaffed, the shortage of IV contrast throughout the U.S. affects our ability to perform CT scans requiring IV injection, forcing hospitals to ration supplies and doctors to prioritize patients. Healthcare providers are pivoting to help conserve contrast by using alternative scans, in some cases postponing non-emergent imaging studies. The shortage of IV contrast started to develop within the healthcare industry in April 2022 and has since been followed by recent shutdowns of offshore IV manufacturing companies due to strict COVID lockdown. 80% a production was lost, causing a six to eight week backlog of needed IV contrast. The Director of Media Relations for AHA stated the shortage situation appears to be nationwide with normal production anticipated to resume by mid-June. Shortages related to heparin, dextrose injections, and various other anesthetics are also an additional concern. Similar to other industries, there are unprecedented levels of congestion at the U.S. ports, increased cost of freight, labor shortages, and increases in transportation costs, all contributing to the overall supply chain situation. Hospitals and physicians are being encouraged to purchase supplies directly from the manufacturers instead of distributors. Innovative collaboration among healthcare organizations and their providers is paramount as the industries work works through current supply chain issues in certainly an already unstable environment. 
And it looks like that's all we have time for today. And this will be a wrap for the 508 Live edition of Talks in Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today, Laurie Johnson, Crystal Kimball, Brianna Santoli, Dr. John Zellum, and Terry Fletcher, who reported on our lead story. Remember, you can listen to all the Talks in Tuesday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us and give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Susan Gatehouse reporting for Talks in Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.